Welcome to the first episode of Book Blether, Fact, Fiction and Fabulousness, the new reading podcast from St Ninian's High School in Carcantilla. We've got a jam-packed episode for you today. We're going to kick off with a bit of book banter between Miss McLeod and myself, Miss McLean, talking about local author Victoria Williamson and her debut novel, The Fox Girl and the White Gazelle. We're going to be joined by Mrs Maxwell from Chemistry, who'll talk about the books she's reading and the books she would like to read. And we're going to round off with an interview with another local author, Martin Stewart, who answered our pupils' questions. Jam-packed episode, let's get started. excited because this is the first episode of Book Blether and we're absolutely delighted. So it's me, Miss McLean and Miss McLeod and every month we'll be bringing you a new podcast talking about all things books, reading and stories. We're starting a regular section and we're going to be choosing a brand new book every month, a book that you can get in your library and Miss McLeod and I are going to be chatting about it and this month I'm delighted that we are showcasing local author Victoria Williamson and her first book The Fox Girl and the White Gazelle. I don't know about you, Miss McLeod, but I loved this book. I loved it too. Also loved the fact that we have an author from Kirk and Tillich. I'm Kirk and Tillich, born and bred. Delighted to see somebody who has managed to write something so fantastic. And I'll tell you a bit more about some specific Kirky things I liked about it. I've got things as well to say. <laughs> it's just, it's so nice to read a book that's set in your local area. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm going to give you a little taster of what the book is like. So I'm going to read the first chapter, which is from the perspective of Caelan. And we're going to hear a little bit about what her life is like. The home time bells so loud it hurts my head. I clamp one hand over my ear and stuff my pencil case and books back in my bag with the other. Everyone else rushes for the door, but I take my time. I'm in no hurry. 6B next door had PE last thing. And that girl with the blonde ponytail won't be finished changing for another five minutes. When she gets down to the alley behind the hairdressers, I'll be waiting for her but not because I'm her friend. It's her birthday today. She was walking around the playground with a big Happy 11th birthday badge on like a Disney princess on parade. I mean, how stupid can you get? Talk about an open invitation. Not to her actual party, of course. I haven't had one of those pink special envelopes filled with glitter from anyone for years. I don't care enough. I don't need friends. And I don't need an invitation from Zoe, snot-nosed weird, to the kind of party where I knock the sugar-filled stuffing out of her. It's not a pretty pink invitation I want from her anyway. It's her birthday money I'm after. I zip up my bag and put my jacket on slowly, staring out of the window at the Drumhill estate. It looks just like the cardboard model on the display table, only our cornflake box tower blocks are painted blue instead of boring grey like the real thing. And Mrs Gibb made us hang a sparkly yellow sun above them. Ha, that's the joke. It's only just stopped raining outside, and if I'm not careful, my feet will be soaking by the time I splash through the puddles to Grandad's house for... Oh. Then I remember, and my knees turn to wobbly jelly. It's been over a year since the accident, and I still forget sometimes. I can't go to Grandad's house ever again. We challenged each other to try and sum up the book in a single line. If we wanted to try and convince you to read this book, how would we do it? So I had a, had a bit of a hard time thinking about how to sum it up in a single line. Yeah, same here. I was struggling with coming up with idea, ideas that wouldn't give too much away. I came up with, it's a story of friendship and growth. And I thought I'd keep it really simple, because, but it's actually a lot more complicated than, than that. So a story of friendship and growth, that's what I went for. I think that's a nice summary, and friendship's so key to the mm-hmm. whole story. I said a story set in Glasgow about friendship in spite of the odds, where we follow refugee Rima, 
and Kaylin as they find they have things in common despite their differences. So that's a lot longer than what, <laughs> what you had. <laughs> as you say, there's so much depth to it that mm-hmm. it's very difficult to cram in what the book is about in a single line. I have to admit that I like these two characters. We were talking about that just before we started yep. recording about how we loved the, the fact that the two main characters are so different from one another. One of the things that I really liked about the books in relation to characters was the narrative. So it's a dual narrative novel and that means we hear from two main characters. There's no one main character and we often talk about in English and Miss McLean mentions that books can be a a mirror or they can be a window. A mirror obviously means when you see something of yourself in the novel, you know, maybe an experience or something that you've been through, you see it in the novel. But we also have windows where you see another perspective or another another life. And this book is perfect for this. Because we have our two narrators. We have Rima, who's from Syria. And she has had to escape a war-torn country and move to another country, which is an experience that I just can't even begin to imagine. I really enjoyed reading about that experience to try and just give me a different perspective of what that might be like. But it also was a mirror in some ways through Kaylin's experience because obviously Kaylin grows up in Glasgow, she hasn't had to move country. And also, as you'll hear later, there are parts of Kaylin's life that I see quite often. So I really liked the dual narrative and thought that was good to see two different perspectives. It makes you reevaluate your own views on it. It definitely does, and as you say, it's a brilliant example of a book that does both. Yes. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah. It can be giving you an insight into a different life as well as showing you yeah. something you recognise in your own. For me personally, I started liking one character more at the start, but it actually flipped towards the end for me, and I preferred the other character. Not that I dislike both characters, like or dislike the other character. I still like the character, but I prefer another one. So I think it'd be interesting to see what other people think of that too. And it's interesting when it's a book with two strong leads Mm -hmm. and there's not one main character, they're both main characters. It can be difficult not to have a favourite, I think, when you have two characters like that. Our next section is a standout character, which I think is probably a nice way to loop in. So you had said, Miss McLeod, that there was a particular character you started by liking. Yes, so there are two characters in the book. We have Rima and we have Kaylin, and they are both from very different backgrounds. For me, I love them both, they're great, but I really... I found Rima's story more compelling at the start and I wanted to read more about her but at the same time while I was reading more about Kaylin, Kaylin's the second character, I found that Kaylin grows more as a character and I actually preferred her at the end because I think I think she overcame, well they both overcome a lot but I like those to see the growth in Kaylin. I thought it was great to see. That's one of the things I've noted as well, as you say, there's growth in our character and I feel like they both went on very different yes, journeys yep. as the book went on. And at the start, of course, Rima's a refugee, so she's from Syria and she's making a new life with her family in Scotland. So she's already overcome an incredibly hard yep. journey to get here. But as you say, Kaylin also has challenges and in her journey through the book, she, she changes so much. Yep. Kaylin's definitely a character that's quite easy to dislike at the start of the book. Without giving too much away, she's the classic school bully, but as we know with a lot of people in that situation, you know, they have something going on in their background and she has a lot going on at home, which affects her behaviour and affects her attitudes towards life, but she begins to overcome some of the, the situation that she's in. And I think it's also through the help of Rima too. That's I think Rima plays a huge part in it and also some foxes, but we won't tell you too much about the foxes. <laughs> but that leads us nicely into the title. Yes. Titles I always think are fascinating. I could always talk for ages or spend ages debating titles and this one is so unusual because it's quite long, the fox girl and the white gazelle. Yeah, when I first saw this, I, I didn't really know 
what to expect. I am a big animal lover, so anything to do with animals, I'm like, yeah, I will quite happily read that. But it was the fact that the fox girl, and I was like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a fox girl? And also like the white gazelle. They're also two very different animals. For me, I was intrigued. I wanted to find out how do these two animals relate to each other? I also, I know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but I definitely do. Um, and <laughs> I think we all love the front cover of this book. I think it's really eye-catching and it's so simple, but it really draws you in. I often say this to classes that I know we hear that we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but we do. Yeah. We can't help we it. We definitely do. I always think if you push past it, if you don't like the cover, but as you say, when the cover's as stunning as that, it just makes you want to read the book, doesn't it? Yeah. I love the title as well. I'm a big animal fan yeah. like you. I thought it had a lot to say about names, so mm-hmm. I went with it again without giving too much away. The title refers to names mm-hmm. within the story, and names themselves are so important. Yeah. And I, I love stories where names are chosen by the author yeah. with a lot of care. And I really like the fact that the title tied up with that yeah. so well. And it's also something that's discussed in the book as well. So Rima discusses the origins of her name and the other character, Kaylin, doesn't think that her name means anything significant, but it actually does mean something very significant and shows her that, you know, that there's thought behind things. And it, I think it also helps give her a bit of confidence as well, because she doesn't think that she's that important. But when she hears what her name means, I think there's a slight change in her at that point, which is always nice to see. And it's what you were saying earlier, that Rima has this understanding at the start and helps Kaylin to realise the same things, which yeah. I quite like as well, which is it feels like true friendship. Yeah. We're going to move on then to the, our most memorable moment, and I'd already mentioned that mine had to do with Kaylin's character. Within the first couple of pages, we realise that Kaylin, as you say, is the classic class bully, mm-hmm. and she is planning on bullying a girl from the year below her in school. And I found that quite a shocking opener. Yep, I fully agree with that, because... When you're first introduced to a character in a book, I often feel that authors try to get you on side with the character so you like them and so you engage with them. But I feel from the offset she was just, there was something so, so many things that were unlikable about her. And it was also the fact that she didn't seem to really care at all about what she was doing. For me, my memorable moment is something similar to do with, with the bullying situation. We find out a bit more about why Kaylin is actually bullying people. And as I mentioned before, Kaylin is, is having difficulties at home. So she has to take the money that she steals from people when when she's bullying them and taking money from them. And it's actually to feed herself and to feed her, her family, which was something for me that was really shocking because Kaylin and Rima are both only about, I think, 11 years old. They're primary seven. So for me, it really hit home that someone so young has had to take on so much responsibility. Obviously, you can never defend defend bullying it's, it's never the right thing to do but makes the situation a bit more ambiguous when you know what her motivations are for doing it so that for me that was the most memorable moment it really stuck with me and I feel it's quite hard-hitting quite hard-hitting to read it was and it, it shows you as well about making that snap judgment because that's definitely what I did when I yeah. read the book the first couple of pages I thought okay I've got the measure of this character but knowing that extra thing and as you say it's so hard-hitting as well when you're reading it yeah our final entry in discussing all these new books every month is a wild card entry where we <laughs> where we get to say one thing that we loved about the book that doesn't quite mm-hmm. fit into any of the other categories. And I think I'm going to let Miss McLeod start with her wild card oh, entry. I'm so excited about this. <laughs> um, so, the book, as we know, is written by an author from Kirk and Tillich. It's set in Glasgow. It's not set in Kirk and Tillich, but 
there are references to places in Kirkintilloch in the book. My local and favourite chippy, Michael's Super Chippy, which is a fantastic chippy, is mentioned in the book. It's the chippy where Caelan goes to to pick up meals for her family. So when I saw Michael's Super Chippy, it was great. It made me think of when Miss McLean comes to our first and second year classes, she always talks about books being mirrors or being windows. For me, seeing Michael's Super Chippy was definitely a mirror moment and I was very excited by it. There was also another one too, I'm pretty sure there was a reference to Lairsland, which is a primary school in the local area, if some of you don't know that. So it was also very exciting to see just familiar names in a book that I was reading, so I really enjoyed that. It's an absolutely brilliant <laughs> feeling when you recognise yes. landmarks, <laughs> yes. it's lovely when you've got an author who's thought that's been important to them, so they've put yep. it in a book, so it's nice it's been immortalised in yep. the written word now. Yeah, forevermore. <laughs> that's definitely my wildcard entry as well, just how nice it is, because as we said at the start, Victoria Williamson grew up in Carcantillic and she actually went to Carcantillic High School. Oh. And we were so lucky because Victoria recorded videos for us last summer mm-hmm. and it's just so nice. She was talking about her memories of growing up in Krakentillich and as you say, just seeing them in the book mm-hmm. is a brilliant reading experience, especially if that's where you're from. We've now wrapped up our five headings and talking about the fox girl and the white gazelle. You can borrow it from the library. Victoria Williamson has another book, The Boy with the Butterfly in Mind. It follows the same structure as the fox girl and the white gazelle where we have a dual narrative. If you read Fox Girl and the White Gazelle and you liked it, there is another book available in the library too. And if you have any suggestions for books that you would like us to review for the podcast, please let either myself or Miss McLeod know. We've already got some from some pupils in third year, some fantastic recommendations, and I can't wait to read them. So please, please, please give us as many recommendations as you can. We'd be delighted to hear from you and delighted to review books that you want to hear about. Just to round things off, Miss McLeod and I would love to thank everyone who's taken part in the podcast so far because, as you know, we ran two competitions, one to pick a name and one to design a logo for our podcast, which will get listed along with the episodes. Firstly, thank you to everybody who entered. We had well over 50 suggestions for names, which made our job incredibly hard. Fantastic to have so many entries. I'd like to thank for the book blether aspect of our name. We have Orla and Eva, so thank you so much. That was great. And for our tagline, I particularly love this, fact, fiction and fabulousness. Thank you, Ryan. That was a great idea. We also have a logo and our logo was designed by Kieran. Love the logo as well. So thank you very much for your entry. We also want to say we would like to have a jingle for our next episode. So if you are musically talented, if you like to create songs, we need your help. We need a nice catchy jingle that people will never forget. So if you have any ideas, please come and see myself or come and see Miss McLean. We're joined now by Mrs Maxwell from Chemistry, who's going to kick off our staff reading role models series. My earliest reading memory is round about 1976, when my mum used to take me into a newsagent's called R.S. McCall's, and I was allowed to pick a comic. I think my favourite comics at that time were probably something called Twinkle and Mandy. And then as I got a wee bit older, into like my kind of teenage years, I would pick things like Blue Jeans. My favourite writer is Philip Pullman. I was first introduced to his Dark Materials, which are three fantasy novels. And this was about, must be about 10 years ago or so. And I've reread them umpteen times. Although they're fantasy novels, there is very much realism that runs through them. And the characters, you can relate to them so easily. And the way he writes is just an absolute pleasure. You just want to keep on reading. 
The last book that made me laugh out loud was an audiobook that I listened to. It's called The Rosie Project by Graham Simsian and it's based on this Australian geneticist professor who spends his days and his whole life just organising himself to reduce inefficiencies, improve himself as a person so that he's an all-round happier person and he's in the search of love and he's at the age of 40, he still hasn't found love and he keeps this questionnaire that he asks potential girlfriends to fill in and if they don't meet the criteria he doesn't even meet them but it also has a real serious note to it as well there's a bit about the fact that he could be autistic and that he's going through all these challenges in life to try and work out why he's like what he's like and along the way he actually does meet his perfect partner who's the total opposite to him and they have some real funny funny moments together i would thoroughly recommend the rosie project if you're looking for a bit of light-heartedness the book i'm reading now is jk rowling's harry potter and the cursed child parts one and two play script it's set 19 years after the conclusion of the final novel harry potter and the deathly hallows the play itself is divided into two parts and there's two acts within each part. I'm really enjoying it so far. It's a different style to what I've read before because it's a play. It's not something that I would have picked up automatically, but I, I am a great fan of Harry Potter. The book that I want to read next, well, it's not really a book. It's a social media site. It's called The Adventures Syndicate. It follows Jenny Graham, who is a woman cyclist. And she cycled the world a total of 18,000 miles back in 2018. And over the 124 days, she collected lots of photographs, put them on social media. She had live updates of videos and just meeting people from around the world and having conversations with them. So I'm going to listen to the podcast series and I'm also going to be listening to the conversations that she has with the people who supplied the equipment that she used. I'll also just be finding out more about her own story, her will and how she found the courage to even do it in the first place and the courage to keep going when things must have got so tough. I'm really looking forward to that. It's so lovely to welcome local author Martin Stewart, who has written and published two books in the UK, Riverkeep and The Sacrifice Box. Martin joins us today to read aloud from The Sacrifice Box and to answer questions put to him by 10 of our pupils. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be the first guest here. This is the beginning of chapter eight, and this is where we meet character Mario for the first time. Mario is the guy who runs the chippy that the main character works in after school. Young writers focus a lot on ideas, and it's such a common question that you get. And people are really obsessed with the, the, I suppose, the kind of mystery of the imagination. And it's the thing that people always talk about with Harry Potter, an imagination. You know, how did you come up with this stuff? But the thing that makes Hogwarts work isn't Gryffindor scarves or moving staircases. It's the characters and the relationship between them. And that's the beating heart of what makes that stuff work. The imagination is overrated, basically, and some of the strangest things that I've come up with have been cobbled together from films and video games and things that I've dreamed about. To me, that's much less interesting than what you do with those ideas and how the characters in the book experience them. Music-filled cars puttered along the streets, 
limbs like wilted leaves spewing from their windows. Bikers and roller skaters cluttered the pavements, while spit puddles formed below panting dogs and sweating hands held freezing sodas to hot skin. Even the children moved slowly, no hurry to be anywhere except in the sunlight that bleached the world like an old photograph. Summertime Hill Ford smelled of seaweed spray and seaweed, of grass and the green tang that spilled from the forest, but it smelled mostly of heat, of bacon asphalt and dry earth, and Seth lifted his shirt to catch the breeze as he rolled down the hill. The last few songs of his Smithside wobblings, the batteries began to die, and the wheels grind swamped the music. He flipped up his board as he approached a little row of shops and carried it through packs of sticky children, clicking off his tape and opening the door as Morrissey was finishing his third plaintive please. It was cool in the silence behind the blinds, and his eyes took a moment to adjust to the reception's gloom. A small fair-haired girl was standing at the counter, damp-eyed and trembling. She had a kitten badge pinned to her pinifer and was clutching her bag like a life belt. Hi, she'd said, Caroline, right? She flashed him a look, eyes wide and staring. You brought Wobie a message about me today. Are you all right? She shook her head. Are you on work experience? She nodded. Something happened? She nodded. You don't need to wait for him. Don't worry, said Sepp, sighing. I'll tell him I let you go, okay? She tried to speak, but only inhaled in a series of quick, mucal gasps. <laughs> she managed. It's okay, said Sepp, strapping up his board. I know. He killed... He killed that dog. It's tough. I know. Off you go. Sepp held the door for her as she ran, tearful and wheezing, into the heat. An interior door opened and a broad, mustachioed face leaned out. Hello, Kathy, Katie, are you still? Oh, September is you. Come inside, you are early. Hi, Mario, said Sepp. Was she all right? Mario waved his hands. Fainted, you know. Well, he said, rolling his eyes up and lolling his tongue. He's always a dead dog, and I kill dog, so, you know. She upset. You didn't. You need to stop saying that. You put the dog down. There's a difference. The dog is dead said Mario, spreading his palms. He was washing the rubber table, arms sheathed to the elbow in rubber gloves. A fat, not-furred dog lay in a trolley under a plastic sheet, stinking of disinfectant and its last terrified poo. I know, but the wording is kind of important, said Seb. People won't bring their animals to a vet who kills them. Mario frowned. But sometimes this is exactly what they bring dog for, he said patiently. For death to be put. Never mind. Sepp as Mario scraped the suds into a bucket and stripped off his gloves. Always like this with little volunteers from school. They want brush ponies, make happy time with animals, but I hurt the animals. I kill them every day. I kill them. I see the eyes in their heads looking at me. It's so sad, you know? But I kill them because it's my job. Sometimes death is great kindness. You must be brave. I am vet. This means I kill all the animals. Sepp closed his eyes. Maybe I should write down some phrases you could use to talk about this stuff. Mario laughed and clapped him on the shoulder with a massive hand. My customers, they love Hawaiian speaking. It's business. He reached through a doorway at the back of the room and a strip light buzzed into life. The chip shops for mica and chrome flickered into view. That section there, the rhythm of the sentences is as important as the words in them in terms of conveying the meaning and getting the sense of what I'm trying to get across. You couldn't get that slow sense of summer heat from wee short sentences. 
But I had said that it was going to be about character and the point of this reading, you're so pleased to have somebody speaking. And especially then when Mario turns up, you're really meant to love Mario. And you couldn't do that if you just described him. He has to speak. And when he speaks, he becomes a real person. Characters are the beating heart of story. People read for people. They don't want to read 10 pages of a description of just what the city is like. It's who lives there and what are they doing. And if character is the beating heart of story, then dialogue is the beating heart of character. Because the things that people say tell you everything about who they are. And that's why I always encourage people as much as possible to use lots of dialogue in their stories when they're writing in school. Hi Martin, it's James Lewis from Digital, just wanted to cover offer. And if you didn't write books, what would you like to do instead? Thank you very much, Jamie. I sort of did and I sort of didn't. I wrote my first book on post-its as an eight-year-old. I remember writing something that basically ripped off whatever book we were reading in primary five at the time. That was the point at which I really thought I could do that. People get paid to make this stuff up. Like, imagine being able to do that for a job. And it was a really weird notion to think, like, oh, he just made this up. You know, it, it wouldn't have existed if he hadn't thought of it. But I didn't have any mad burning passion through school. I was good at English and I did decent bits of writing. And then when I was about 19 and I was doing English at uni, I read something that wasn't very good. At uni, I was reading things like Frankenstein and stuff like that, which is maybe the best book ever written. So that's quite a high bar. And then I read something rubbish and I thought, I can do this. You know, it wasn't like thinking, well, I could come up with Frankenstein, which is a work of genius that will still be read in 200 years. But I could do this. You want to be a footballer, for example. There's no point in watching Kevin De Bruyne. Watch the Scottish national team. You know, watch Ollie McBurney. If, if you watch Ollie McBurney, it's, it's much easier to think, well, I could do that. And so from that point, I came in and out of it. 25, and then I started teaching. I, I came back really seriously to it when I got my, my book deal, which is, is why I left teaching. I wrote a short story when I was off work, having broken both my kneecaps playing football. And I was off work for three months, wrote a short story because I was bored out of my mind. And about a year later, Penguin bought the short story. I had like 16 weeks to turn an 1800 word story into an 86,000 word book. I couldn't teach effectively and do that. The point is that it was something that I had been really working towards for like 12 years. The sort of success that you get after a period of training and hard work. You have to do it because you enjoy it in the moment. Hi Martin, it's Jack from S6 here. And I was wondering, has being an author ever given you the opportunity to travel? If so, where is your favourite place and why? I've got some good answers for this. I've got some really good answers. I've never been flown about the place. The two best examples of travel that I've got, when my first book came out and my wife and I went to New York and my parents came with us, never really imagined going. It just seemed like somewhere that existed in films. Genuinely never imagined going there. I got to go and see the book in a bookshop on Fifth Avenue the day it came out. I mean, it was really, really cool. That was an amazing experience. That was summer 2016, and my mum died in May 2017, really, really suddenly. So that now has become such a significant thing in my life, you know, that she was there to see this happen. It was a really, really important thing, and the book gave me that. And the other one that I've done, I went to Barga in Italy which is the most Scottish town in Italy. And so they have a Scotland week. We, the Scottish writers football team, I was the goalie and we were flown out to play the Italian writers team as part of this Scotland celebration. It was amazing. We got led out with mascots. They did the anthems, the whole thing. It was absolutely brilliant. It is not important that we got beat 5-0, but that was such a cool experience. 
Time out and it's another from S1. What has been the highlight of your career? Thank you, Noah. The moment that I thought of instantly when I heard your question was the moment that I finished the first book and it was done. Normally what happens when you get a book published is that you write the book, the whole thing, and you send it off. But I was totally back to front because like I said, I'd only written four pages and then I had to come up with the whole story and I had no idea what was going to happen in the book. It was a major, major panic. So what I had done was I had written the end because I knew how it ended and I knew the way that I wanted the ending to feel. And I had to go back then and write up to that and sort of join it together. And I remember really clearly, and as, as a sort of career highlight, to actually do it and write the book. I remember typing the last sentence and standing back and going, it's done. That was the point of like, you know, it had all worked out. Hi Martin, it's Jessica from S1. And I was wondering, what it's like being an author? And when your books come out, do you feel scared or excited or a bit of both? Hi Jessica, thank you very much. I think it's a really good question because the reality of doing things like this that are a bit odd and a bit unusual and it's not a normal job is different to what I had expected it to be. Obviously I was a teacher for a long time. So the thing about being a teacher is it's so constant and dynamic and full of energy. When you teach a big class, part of your day is that you get to borrow their energy a little bit because they come into the room, they're all chatting to each other and they're all slagging each other off and all that kind of thing. And that becomes part of your day. And because I'd been in the same school for like six years, I knew everybody. To go from that to in the house on my own, it was really, it was very isolating and quite strange. I've been doing it now for six years. Now I'm very used to it and I really love it. I get so much more flexibility in what I do. In terms of actually earning money, to think about this as a career, not as random stroke of luck, but as something that I worked towards for a really long time. And I've had a huge amount of good fortune, obviously, but it's a way to make a living. You don't just become a millionaire and that's you. I mean, like I make less money doing this than I did teaching. And that's really weird. I get paid really, really irregularly. So going from having a month by month salary into my account, I get paid when the book comes out or when I sign a new contract. And there can be huge jumps in between that time. And I spend a lot of that time doing stuff like this. It's a really fun way to earn a living, but really, really different when the book comes out. It's something that I hadn't really been able to imagine. I've written it so long ago. And also I've been over it and over it and over it and over it. It's so exciting and you get the book in your hands and that's the moment. But by that point, I've read it. 12 times. I've been through it. I know every word in the book, editing and changing. So it's not like you come up with something and you write it down in this burst of creativity. You work on it for a long time. And the work's not some sort of quick, exciting process where you go, I've come up with this idea and then boom, you've got a book. It takes maybe two, two and a half years from the moment of starting it. And then it comes out you know, years from now. And the publishers already know what they're publishing in 2023, for example. So if I come up with something now, it's probably not going to come up until 2024. The moment when you get the book, it's always really nice because I don't have a big 10 book deal or anything like that. I am very conscious that it might not last forever. And that's very typical. Very, very few people have books in shops for 5, 10, 20 years. Most people maybe get one book out and then, you know, they go back to work and that's been it. So I'm already way ahead of where I ever hoped I would be. So with that feeling like it might, it might stop tomorrow and each one might be the last one. When I get the box of books, I'm holding my hands in front of me right now as though I'm holding this box of books. Even if it ends tomorrow and that's it, it's all over. I have this thing, like I'm holding it in my hands and it can't be taken away. Payoff is this 
one day and the rest of my life is all the work and everything that goes into it. It's not about winning the tournament because it takes you five years to get there and you need to be happy. That's how I think about my work in life. So thanks very much for your question. Hi, Martin. This is Beth from S1, and I really want to know which authors help and inspire you to write. Thank you, Beth. Specifically, Terry Pratchett, Philip Pullman, Mary Shelley, Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Jekyll and Hyde. Those are the sort of big ones that spring to mind. My favourite book of all time is Canary Row by John Steinbeck. And it's the one that totally changed how I write because I was writing a totally different way with a completely different style and trying to do something else. And then I read Canary Row and it changed everything. Light bulb moment. Open the pages and let the stories crawl in by themselves. And I let the stories speak. And there are points still where I'm, I'm fixing the stuff that I've written. And I realised that I can hear myself too strongly and it's not the story, it's me. And I have to delete those bits. And that changed everything. My son's middle name is Steinbeck. Uh, you know, it really, it's the book. I really love it. Hi, Martin. This is Jacob from S1. Thanks for taking the time to answer my question. I understand that you have worked in many professions and wrote your first book at the age of eight. What and who inspired you and what was the biggest challenges you faced when writing your first novel? Thanks. Thanks very much, Jacob. The teaching most of all, the teaching was probably the thing that made me realise that I wanted to write books primarily for younger readers. I don't think of them as books for young people. I think of them as books about young people. And that was what school gave me. There's a lot of school stuff in the sacrifice box. Seth has to go to school a few times. And there's an atmosphere of like a hot, low summer lesson and something. I really want to get that in there. And the kind of dynamic of people coming back from sports day and interrupting the class and being sent to the office and all that stuff. There's a lot of pressure to get that right, actually. The challenge, I think, was your other question with writing the first book was I'm genuinely just sort of coming up with it. But it actually, I wrote it really quickly. I wrote the first draft in six weeks. And the first draft was 83,000 words long. So that was basically, it was like a couple of thousand words a day. And because I didn't have anything else to do, I used to get up. And in the morning before lunch, I would edit the stuff that I had written the day before. And after lunch, I would write new stuff. In retrospect, that was really easy. Now I have two kids. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old and a big dog who needs out walked. The four-year-old and the one-year-old are extremely cute, but they are the total enemy of productivity. So that's the big challenge now is finding time to actually do it. Hi, Martin. It's Mark from S1. What was your inspiration for your book, Riverkeep? Hi, Mark. Thank you very much for that. The inspiration for it was the inspiration for the short story. I wrote a short story when I was off work after knee surgery and just couldn't move and was so bored. I wrote this short story. The Riverkeep is based on the Glasgow Humane Society, which is a thing that I read about in a Sunday newspaper. I live in the West Coast now, but I'm from Glasgow and I had never heard of this. So the Glasgow Humane Society is literally what the Riverkeep is. He's just retired, actually. I think he retired about six months ago. It was a guy, George Parsonage. I had gone to see him when I got the book deal. And I thought he'd be really like, oh, somebody's writing a book about me. But he was like, oh, I have been about six books. I was in Taggart. You know, he's been tagged about six times. He's not, he wasn't fussed at all, you know. There's actually a book by Alex Gray called The Riverman. And I think he literally is in it as himself. But he gave me some really, really good nuggets. So this is what I was saying before about the imagination. How do you come up with that? Like a boy who works on the river and his job is to recover dead bodies. 
what an imagination you must have. It's like, no, it's based on this. It was a real one in Glasgow. There's probably a similar thing on big river cities around the world, Thames, New York, because the river needs to be looked after. The people of the city need to be looked after on the river. It seems like this big leap of imagination, but it literally is something that I read about in the paper and then made into my own story. The idea is much, much less important than what you do with it, because that's not the thing that makes the story interesting. The thing that hopefully makes the story interesting is Wall and what he has to do. And I think that's the thing about the ideas. I would genuinely say, if I sat down with a Sunday newspaper, I would find five things that I think, ooh, there could be a book in that. The practice of it and the habit of it is knowing which ones will work and which won't. Gathering all this stuff, you know, like a beachcomber, you end up with this big bag of stuff in your head. Reading newspapers, you know, watching documentaries. You're never going to just sit and think, okay, brain, come up with something unbelievably good that nobody's ever thought of before now. Nobody can just pull something from their own brain like that. All comes from outside, from things that you've read, seen, experienced, overheard in conversations. It's about processing all that and how effectively you can get that down on the page. Hi, Martin. This is Fergus from S5. I was really wanting to know, what was the biggest challenge that you faced when you're trying to write the Sacrifice Box? Did you know how you wanted it to end when you started writing? Thanks for that, Fergus. That's a sort of uncomfortably good question. I don't think so. The Sacrifice Box changed a lot from the first draft to the published book. And actually, I can tell you it had 26,500 individual changes, which is way more than twice Riverkeep and it is a longer book. And the Sacrifice Box is only 81,000 words compared to Riverkeep's 86, but it had more than twice the number of changes. And I had a whole different monster in the very first draft, which has been completely stripped out. So Barnaby the teddy bear, who is the sort of chief antagonist, was in the book the first time but was one of the enemies so I changed that so it was really all about him which was a much better idea being brave enough to cut these things is the thing that really makes a difference I didn't totally know how it would end I knew what set would have to do to end it hashtag no spoilers I knew the feeling of it this is something I've seen Patrick Ness say as well so what I knew was the exit feeling and the tone of the finish the kids and their new friendship and that moment at the end, I knew exactly how I wanted that to feel. And so I worked towards that feeling, basically. It meant it really shaped how I treated their friendships as I was writing. I had a big plan in my head and used that as a guide as I was going. Hi, Martin. It's Beth from S2. How do you plan your stories and do you have a preferred style of book to write? If so, is it similar to the sort of books you like to read? That's a really good question. Thank you. I do plan the story. I have to plan the stories because the publisher needs to see a synopsis now. The Wild Hunts Boys was a synopsis plus the first three chapters. There's a good bit of flexibility built in there, but that outlines what happens in the story. It doesn't outline exactly how it happens. I know I need them to be in the middle of the forest for this to happen, but I don't know how they get there or why or what prompts them to get there. So there is still that sort of connective tissue between these things. But the stuff in between is still unplanned. I write what is technically a third-person focalised narrator. So the story is being told, and it's like you're looking over the shoulder of the main character. We're not in their head. It's not first person, I do this, I do this, I wake up. I find that really, really difficult. And I really admire people that can do it. I do read that, but I find it unsettles me now. Good ones have a really, really strong voice. And I find it quite hard to get that voice out of my head after I've read it, and it gets in the way of what I want to say myself in my own books. So I probably more read non-fiction now 
or things that write the same style as me. I'll read crime or science fiction or gothic stuff or, you know, anything. I'm not fussy about what type of book it is, but the feeling of the language and thing has to be the kind of way that my language would feel. Otherwise, it gets stuck in my head and I get scared that I'll lose the ability to sound the way that I would normally sound. It's not that it doesn't work. I just doesn't fit. And I found that out by doing it. This is the thing. You just need to do it. Embrace the failures because the failures are where you learn about these things. You need to embrace failure because it tells you a lot about yourself. It's not being perfect It's something the first time. It's just doing it again and again and again and again. Studied repetition, being aware of why it fails and trying harder is how you improve at anything. Hi, Morgan. This is Danielle from S3. I'd like to ask what defines your writing style and makes you differ from others? If I were to word it differently, if someone were to recognize your writing, how would they recognize it? That's quite a question. Wow. Because I've just finished by saying it. I worry that I will lose the ability to sound like myself if I read things that stick in my head. So the follow-up question is, what makes you sound like yourself? That is a tricky one, that. There is a rhythm to the sentences that has been poached and inspired by John Steinbeck. The rhythm that he writes, very direct, very melodic, and I try and capture that. There is a balance in the way that I write between the passages where we get an elegant and elegiac description describing the setting and the place and the environment, sensory experience, contrasted with rapid-fire dialogue. The sacrifice box, the big watchword that I had in my head was balance. It had to be scary, but not too scary. And that was balanced with the humour and the funniness of it. I wanted it to be really elegantly written, but not too much so that you were just reading pages of florid description. It had to really be punchy and quick and really take you somewhere. The big thing that I think makes my stories work as identifiably mine is a strong sense of place with something a little bit other in it. The Sacrifice Box, it's set in an island, which is basically Arden. What I was going for with the setting was like an American 80s movie set in the UK. And I thought Hillford sounded like it could be a small town in a Stephen King book, but also it could be somewhere in Scotland. So that sense of place, but with something other in it. So in this, it's the Sacrifice Box, which we don't know where it comes from. There's a teddy bear killing people. It's that little bit of grit, the otherness in it. That's the thing that I think probably defines the type of book that it is. And I think the feel of it, this is going to loop around really beautifully to the stuff we talked about at the start, is the dialogue. One of the things with Riverkeep, although it's set somewhere that doesn't exist, I wanted it to be a Glasgow book and to feel recognisably Scottish, but I think probably Glaswegian and West of Scotland at least. The sort of cheerful belligerence with which the characters affectionately slag each other off all the time. I think is a bit of a hallmark of what I do. The directness with which they will have a go at each other and undermine each other. That's the dynamic that I think you can see in all my books and I think probably will be able to see going forward. Excellent question. It's not coming up with something that nobody's ever done or some mad original idea. You don't get extra points for making it super difficult. You can base it on the settings of books that you've read, characters from your favourite film, all that kind of thing. The point is not to just take these things wholesale, but to use them as the building blocks for your own work. And once you take that pressure off your imagination and get your character speaking, you will start to get something that feels much more your own. It's not just good writing, but it's something true. And that's really what connects with readers the most. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed that. Thank you for your questions. Extremely good, extremely tricky. 
Thank you so much, Martin. And that brings us to the end of our first episode of Book Blether Fact, Fiction and Fabulousness. We hope you've enjoyed the episode and Miss McLeod and I look forward to bringing you episode two after the summer. Keep sharing stories. We'll see you then. Bye.